Well, hey, hey, it's so good to be together. Um, I didn't know if I was going to wear short sleeves or long sleeves today, and uh, then I simultaneously got soaked while it was snowing while I came in today, so that's a wonderful experience. Hey, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Communities Downtown Campus, and it's a pleasure, it's a pleasure to have you here this morning. Thanks for participating. I've got my name amnesty uh, name tag, so that's who I am. I'm Gabe. It's a pleasure, pleasure to meet you. Hey, so last year around, um, I think May it was, at the end of May, it was a beautiful, beautiful May day, right? It's one of those days where you have the windows rolled down, you've got the sunroof open, you've got Beyonce blaring on the stereo. Okay, some of you. You're, the rest of you are liars because you know you love it. But you're, you're driving and, and, and everything was great. I mean, I could have sworn there was a bluebird on my shoulder, people are waving while they're walking down the sidewalk. And then it happened. It always happens, doesn't it? Whatever it is, it happened. All the lights in my dash lit up. I mean, like all of them, but it didn't freak. Here's why, okay? The lights in my dashboard in our car have come on at different points. They come on, and then the car starts shaking, and then you make it to your destination. You let it rest. Give it a night to think about what it did. And the next morning, it's fine, okay? And so I was like, hey, it's no big deal. These lights come on all the time. So I park it over here at the church. I come in for a couple hours to do some work. And then I go back out to the car, put the key in the ignition. And there's one sound that, I mean, out of all the sounds you could hear when it comes to a car, there's probably one sound that's the worst. And it's when you hear a whole lot of nothing, right? You turn the key and there's not even like an attempt. It's not like, I'm trying. It's just like, no, I'm dead. Um, and then when, you, when you find out your car is dead, that doesn't just ruin your day, your week, your month. It kind of, it could potentially ruin your year financially. And, and listen, it's my fault, okay? These things had been coming on and off. My car had been trying to tell me a story that something was deeply wrong with the engine. I'd read a blog somewhere that it was, you know, just a sensor. And you should always believe what you read on the internet, right? Good, good rule of thumb. And it'd been trying to tell me, hey, something's going on in the engine. Pay attention. And for whatever reason, it, either it wasn't most important at that moment in that day or I was too busy or I just thought maybe this is just something going on that's a muck, but it's going to be fine. But my car died that day. And as human beings, we've got these gauges in our lives, these, these things that, that give us an outward sign of what's going on in here, in the deep recesses of who we are as human beings. And Jesus this morning, he's going to point us to one of the clearest gauges in your life and mine, one of the clearest indicators as to whether we're genuinely followers of Jesus or not. And listen, this morning, this is what we're going to find out. Followers of Jesus love those, love who the world ignores, love who the world ignores. And, and I want to be very clear. It's not like Doing that action makes you a Christian in the same vein that those indicator lights weren't the thing that broke my engine. But they do reveal what's going on inside of here. And Jesus is even more passionate about what he says here such that those who don't care about those the world ignores, those who kind of just go with the flow and ignore those the world ignores, Jesus doesn't mince words. And I'm not trying to be dramatic here, but he basically says you can go to hell. One of the primary gauges as to where you're headed for eternity. It's not whether you visited a church once or twice in your life. It's not whether you prayed a prayer when you were a kid and you kept most of the rules 
in your life. It's not whether you lived a decent life or your parents lived a decent life or you raised your kids well enough that they lived decent lives. Instead, one of the truest gauges of the Christian life, one of the truest indicators as to whether we're followers of Jesus or not, is whether or not we love who the world ignores. And we're going to listen to Jesus this morning as he details this out. You may not believe me, but let's hear from Jesus himself. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Our passage today is from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Hear the word of the Lord. When the Son of Man comes in his glory all and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations, and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on the right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick. And you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. And he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't welcome me. Naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick, in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they'll also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he'll answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We've been walking through Matthew's gospel account for some time. We started last year, took a break, and we're continuing on this year and find our climax there in Easter. Matthew, who walked and talked with Jesus, he gives us this unique window into the last week of Jesus' life and his teaching. And one of his last section of teaching is called the Olivet Discourse. We've been walking through that because Jesus is on the Mount of Olives and he's looking at Jerusalem and he's guiding his disciples as to what it's going to look like to faithfully follow him between his first coming and before he returns again in his second coming. We've already seen in Matthew that Jesus first came as this vulnerable baby, right? And right away in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we read Jesus' point for coming in the first century was to save his people from their sins. And it reaches its climax in the cross. All four gospel accounts reach a climax in Jesus Christ crucified. This isn't tangential. This is essential to understanding Jesus' first coming. 
He came to live the life we couldn't live, die the death we deserve to die, and then rose again. And listen, anybody who promises they're going to die and then rise again and actually does it, they demand a hearing as to what it means to be truly human and what lies the other side of the grave. So that's his first coming. But there's another day coming, and that's where we get to our passage this morning, a day where Jesus says he's going to come, but it's not going to be hidden. It's not going to be quiet. He's going to come in his glory, right? And he's going to come with his angels, and he's going to sit on his throne, and everybody this world over across history will be brought before him, and he will judge the world. You see, judgment is coming, and at that moment, based upon his verdict, some will go to eternal punishment and some will go to eternal joy in his presence. And Jesus describes this moment as being like when a shepherd separates sheep from goats, which that's just got to change your whole experience when you go to a petting zoo, right? Like goats are going to hell. Ava, don't get near them. You know, bad, <laughs> bad influence. <laughs> Guilty by association. Don't, don't get over there. But seriously, goats, okay, goats and sheep, they often graze together. So what would happen was shepherds would separate the, the sheep because they had these big fluffy coats and they could handle the cool weather at night. But goats, they would huddle together so they would separate the goats from the sheep. And Jesus says the day is coming, a night of this age. And he's going to judge the world. And in the end, there's only two kinds of people. There's not a bunch of different categories. There's just two. There's sheep and goats. And Jesus will have the final say on who is who. He'll say who is right or righteous and who is wicked or wrong. He's the one who either invites the sheep into his eternal life, life with him, or tells the goats to depart from him into eternal punishment. Both places, do you see this in the text? Both places he's prepared. It's not like these are just random places. He's actually prepared them. And he has the final say, not you, not me, and a day is coming, judgment is coming. And look, only weirdos enjoy talking about hell. So I'm not someone who loves talking about hell, but I'm a follower of Jesus. And when Jesus talks about it, he talks about it a lot. So we're going to talk about it as well. And it would be pastoral malpractice for me to skip over this or to downplay what Jesus is highlighting here in our passage and so when we come to this topic of hell, we're also coming to the topic of judgment, right? And when we come to this topic, there's two things we need to kind of come to terms with for every human being. Here they are. Everyone lives as if there's a judge, whether they admit it or not. Everyone lives as if there's a judge. And then secondarily, everyone knows the only way that judge is actually a good judge is if that judge does something about evil in the world, right? Everyone lives as if there's a judge. And I'm not alone here in just making this blanket statement. Anybody here ever seen Modern Family? Anybody? Yeah, you got some hands. There it is. So Manny from Modern Family, he really gets this. And so let's watch what, what he has to say, whether kind of like processing, skipping church to go play golf. It's, it's a hilarious interchange. Let's watch. Look at that. It's a perfect shot. And I hit that with a bent club. So you're not worried about getting in trouble, you know? With God? Oh, I think he's got bigger things on his plate. So you're not worried about hell? Let me let you in on a little secret, kid. There is no hell. Seriously? No hell? That's fantastic! 
So everyone just goes to heaven? Yep. End of story. <laughs> Even bad people? Yeah, they're, they're, they're in another section. See, they got this thing figured out. Can I hit this? You distracted me. I didn't say anything. I could hear you thinking. I'm thinking about this heaven of yours that's full of bad people. <laughs> Not full, the tiniest fraction. They're walled in. What if they break out? They're surrounded by a lake of fire. <laughs> there are fiery lakes in heaven? This is turning into hell. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> I just don't understand this bad section of heaven. What if... They send you to the wrong place. They made mistakes with paperwork sometimes. I was put in a girls' health class last year and had to watch a very disturbing movie. Calm down. <laughs> Instead of thinking all morning about what heaven's going to look like, what it's not going to look like, who's where, if there even is a heaven, why don't we just concentrate on this beautiful, carefree day that's in front of us? I'd rather concentrate on something you just said. There might not even be a heaven? I don't know. You seem pretty sure of yourself this morning. <laughs> so what happens after you die? There's just nothing? Look, you're focusing too much on one little thing that I said. It was just a hunch, okay? A hunch? I'm skipping church based on a hunch? <gasps> all right, all right, don't freak out on me here, kid. <laughs> you're playing pretty fast and loose with my soul. Listen, I want you to forget <laughs> everything that I said, okay? Some things can be forgotten, Jay. <laughs> Listen, okay, the writers of Modern Family, they're not proponents of the Christian worldview, but listen, if there's something after death, it does raise this question. And logically, you have to get to this point. Like, what does God do with, with, with folks who are wanting to, you know, carry out evil and those who are wanting to carry out, like, how does God divvy all this stuff out? And listen, everybody lives in light of a judge. I love the way theologian Steve Garber he processes this. He says, if we lose God in the modern world, then we lose access to these four great ideas, meaning, purpose, responsibility, and accountability. They're so intertwined. You start taking one, the others begin to crumble. Because listen, if there's no one over it, if there's no judge, does anything even matter? Who cares if you're lazy or hardworking? Who cares if you live a life for justice or carry out injustice? Who cares? If there's no one over your life and it all ends in nothing, what does it matter? Arthur Miller, um, he's a playwright, and in his play, After the Fall, which it probably has something to do with his marriage, divorce, and then the eventual tragic death of his wife, Marilyn Monroe, and one of the main characters who goes by Quentin, he asks this, For many years, I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then, what a good lover. Then, a good father. Finally, how wise or powerful or whatever. And we all do that, right? And then he continues. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that one moved on an upward path towards some elevation where I would be justified or, or even condemned, a verdict. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which of course is another way of saying despair. Our choices, our lives, they only have meaning if there's a judge. 
Because if there isn't anyone up there, then it's kind of like studying for a test that no one's going to grade. It's like making a meal that no one's going to taste. It's like building a house that no one will ever occupy. It's like training for a race where there's no winners. You're left with despair and meaninglessness. But if we're honest, um, it's not just that everyone, regardless of their worldview, lives as if there's a judge. But we all know that the only way that there can be a judge, and if he's a good judge, is that he has to do something about evil, right? He has to carry out and he has to deal and condemn evil. Otherwise, if he lets rape, if he lets child abuse, human trafficking, if he lets these things go unanswered, he's worse than the perpetrators. I think that's what kind of man he's getting at there in modern family. When it comes to the idea of hell, I think for most of us, we think there are things in this world that need to change, regardless of your worldview. I think everybody can say, hey, there are things in this world that need to change. But I think the problem might lie in the fact that so many would say that, yeah, there are things that need to change, but there isn't real evil out there that deserves God's condemnation. When we hear of eternal punishment in hell, off of Jesus' lips here, it seems a bit over the top for modern urban folks. I mean, we can think we don't need a God of wrath for us to get along for all eternity. We don't need this eternal conscious punishment for there actually to be reconciliation and peace into eternity. But why don't, why don't you try telling that to a mom whose child was abducted and the perpetrator never found? Try telling that to the victims of the Rwandan genocide. The Christians in Sudan who lose their lives for finding allegiance with Jesus. Or the mother who's lost maybe not just one, but three children to gang violence. What do you do with justice there? Mirzlov Volf, a Yale theologian from Croatia who endured violence in the Balkans under communist rule, he so brilliantly points out that this understanding of God, a God who doesn't judge, it can only be birthed in a suburban home in the West, isolated by comfort. And then he goes on to say, in a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. You have to do something with justice. There has to be someone who holds people to account you see, hell is a dreadful place and it's an awful condition. But God is completely just because he's a good judge to bring condemnation. And it should break our hearts. It's not something we celebrate. Instead, what it does and what it has caused as a catalyst for the church throughout history is to use every breath we breathe to proclaim the gospel because that's the only hope. Judgment is absolutely necessary if there's a judge and he's a good judge. But maybe the most damning news of all, and maybe our biggest hang-up with the idea that there's a judge that would bring condemnation, isn't the fact that there's evil out there. It's the fact that there's evil in here. And this argument becomes a battle for our very own soul, where God says that all have sinned and fall short of the verdict, innocent. That from our very birth, we've hurt each other, we've intentionally ignored each other, selfishly withheld from each other, and in a world where we've rebelled against God, 
broken relationships, furthered these cycles of destruction and death. Our only hope is God's unmerited grace through faith and Jesus Christ going to the cross on our behalf and taking that guilty verdict and taking it upon himself and instead now giving us what he earned. Now the verdict innocent can lie on those who put their trust and faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's our only hope. That's the only avenue of rescue. But how, and this is a question that every believer asks, how can we have confidence that we have that kind of faith? How can we be confident that our heart has been rescued. And Jesus gives us a gauge here. Okay? So let's look together at verse 35. Let's land here in our passage. Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, When did we do all of this? And Jesus repeats all of this. He's seeking to make emphasis. And down in verse 40, he lands the plane and the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, don't be confused. Once again, doing these things isn't what saves you. Doing these things shows that you've been rescued. It's an inside-out movement. You're not trying to earn your salvation. This isn't the social gospel, but the gospel always has social implications for followers of Jesus. And what we have here is a gauge, this outward sign of an inward reality. And listen, don't miss this. The clearest gauge of a rescued heart is active compassion toward the vulnerable. Active compassion toward, toward the vulnerable. You love who the world ignores, The hungry don't stay hungry. Strangers are treated like friends. The hurting find healing. The oppressed find a voice. The discarded find a home. The co-worker always pushed aside finds a shoulder. The felon is given a second chance. The people who don't look like you, act like you, speak like you, are still loved by you. You love who the world ignores. And that's the light on the dashboard. That's your sheepness coming out. And that's what's supposed to set the church apart this world over. And listen, whatever's done for the vulnerable, Jesus says he takes it real personally. Real personal. He says we're doing it for him. But if you don't, it's also an indicator that you're a completely different kind of person. It's not that these are two different kinds of sheep. This is a sheep and a goat. It's not just about what you do. It's who you are and whose you are that is making the distinction. These are indicators. And what Jesus is saying is if you don't, don't consider yourself a sheep. You're a goat. You're a completely different kind of person because when Jesus enters our life, he makes us into a new new creation. And so what Jesus says, the clearest gauge of a doomed heart is passive callousness towards the vulnerable. So you've got active compassion and passive callousness. And listen, Jesus takes that personally. Look with me here at verse 41. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we do all these things? And 
Jesus repeats all of this again, and this is so crucial. Remember, early on, all of these texts for hundreds of years were copied by hand. So whenever something is repeated, and it's repeated in length four times, we are meant to see the emphasis just screaming off the page. These are really important. We can't just gloss over them. As a reader, it slows you down. As a writer and a copier, it takes a lot of time. Jesus is making a point. Look at verse 45. Then he'll answer them saying, I truly say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And in one sense, that's a bit terrifying, isn't it? Because it's so easy to just do nothing. This passive callousness requires you to not do something. It's easy to focus on our five-year plan or professional image or your own problems. And sure, everyone wants to be loved and everybody wants to love. But to love those the world ignores, it takes time, it takes capacity, it takes extra energy. What's your dashboard indicating? Are you paying attention? Now, if you're here, and so this is the gist of the passage, and you're walking through it, and you take what Jesus says here seriously, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, there's really only one question that makes sense to ask of this text. How do I love who the world ignores? How do I do this? If Jesus takes this personally, if this is an indicator of what Jesus is or isn't doing in my life, how do I love those the world ignores? And I want to give you three movements. I think that will equip us to be more active in our compassion toward the vulnerable. And the first is this, the clearest gauge, if the clearest gauge of a doomed heart is its callousness, we need to be aware of our calluses. Which I know is a tall order, okay? Um, we're so blind and we don't even realize it. How do we, how do we get out of this trap? We're, we're conditioned through the pain we've experienced in our story or, or the, the pleasures we've experienced in our story and it shapes the way we see other people's stories. We are encultured people impacted by politics and both subconscious and conscious biases. And so here's what I want us to do this morning. We're going to actually take a test. Um, It's a short video, and most people can't answer the question. There's a lot of things going on in this video, but the, the narrator asks a question. I want you to work really hard to see if you can actually get the appropriate answer, okay? So we're going to watch this uh, quick test. Let's, let's look at it together. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? I remember the first time I watched that, it just took me, I was like, what are you talking about, moonwalking bear? How did you guys do? Did you do okay? Some of you are like, totally had it. Not a big deal. Um, 
But listen, there's so much in our life, there's so much in our life that we miss because we're just not looking for it. It's not that it isn't there. We just don't have the eyes to see. We have questions being asked of us to pay attention to other things. We, we were told on what the important people look like. And often those important people look a lot like us or in the same socioeconomic class as us. And we find our self-worth by hearing their affirmation. But Jesus says, hey, there's a different gauge when you're, when you're my follower as to how you're doing in the Christian life. And so I want to do something. I want you to do something this week. Um, when you meet someone, when you're driving through downtown, when you're at work, when you see someone on the news or in a TV show, I want you to ask this question. What's the first thing you notice about that person? What's the first thing you notice about that person? Try it out. Do you first notice their race? Whether or not they have a criminal record or not? What language they speak? The accent they have? Their political affiliation? Their sexual identity? Whether they're rich or poor? Educated or attractive? Whether they're in the U.S. legally or illegally? Because listen, if you start with these, if these become the primary defining characteristics in how you engage people, compassion will feel absolutely impossible at times. And it will stop your activity in its tracks. And you'll lean into passive callousness all too naturally. So to be clear, the point isn't, okay, I'll be very clear here. We shouldn't gloss over these details as we get to know each other. For example, the ignorance to fight for a colorblind society has often made our culture all that much more racialized. Okay, so the point isn't to gloss over these details. But once we're aware of our calluses, and we can admit we have some growing to do. And it's not until we see we have a problem will we ever work towards a solution. And it's then we're able to, number two, able to learn to see others through Jesus' eyes. Like the Apostle Paul, when scales fail from his eyes, when he embraced the gospel and he led this massive racial reconciliation anchored in the gospel, where now there's a church that's able to house Jews and Gentiles, when he's engaging in the little letter to Philemon, a letter we rarely touch, right? This little letter Philemon. It's actually the dynamics of a socioeconomic reality where Onesimus, a former slave, has ran away from his master. And Paul's bringing reconciliation across socioeconomic bounds, making a community that's diverse in socioeconomic and race. It was at the very core of his gospel ministry. And he didn't have the eyes to see until he encountered Christ. So what does this mean? It means when we see someone for the first time, our first thought should be, this could be my brother or sister in Christ. First thought. Or maybe the second one, this could become my brother or sister in Christ. Because listen, everything changes when we see people as family, right? <laughs> everything changes when we see people as family or even future family. When it's, when it's family, you're there in the courtroom. When it's family, you're helping with the kids. When it's, when it's family, you're there in the crisis, visiting in prison, fighting for better education, opening up that extra room, considering them for that job. Sure, you're going to set firm boundaries. You're going to have honest communication. You'll even go above and beyond. And sometimes that's going to mean saying no. Like, I've got kids. They're flesh and blood. They're family. I don't say yes to everything they say because it could destroy them. But as family... One of the biggest things when you see people as family is that you're there. You're all in. And I think one of the biggest calluses Christians have today here in the United States 
is toward other Christians in the local church. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus calls these individuals brothers and sisters. Because he doesn't call everybody brothers, does he? He doesn't call the goats brothers. He doesn't call the Pharisees brothers. There's clearly people he does not call brothers. Earlier in Matthew chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus says, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus loves his bride. He loves the church. And he loves, you know, when, when people come and they say, Hey, Jesus, your, your, your brother and sister are waiting for you. Jesus says what? Who are my brothers and sisters but those who do the will of the Father? He's very clear. And when the Apostle Paul was persecuting the church before he began following Jesus, when Jesus confronts Paul on the road to Damascus, what does Jesus say? He doesn't say this about any other people group. He says, why are you persecuting me, the church? He has this unique dynamism in his presence within the church, his people, his brothers and sisters across racial lines and socioeconomic lines. But it's in Christ that the family of God is now defined. It's in Christ that we're adopted into this forever family. Now, of course, this, this love for the family should overflow to those who aren't family, but so often anymore, we're skipping the family altogether. And we're completely missing Jesus' agenda. I've heard some of the most insensitive and downright abusive language for the church. And I'm definitely not one to say the church is perfect. I know I'm not perfect. <laughs> I know I don't always do the perfect thing in the midst of the church. But I think one of the greatest ironies of our age are Christians who proclaim to have the greatest passion for the vulnerable outside the church and yet the most violent in their speech toward those inside the church. Brothers and sisters, this ought not be so. It makes no sense. And there we find this twisted indignation that devours itself and when you get around, you will get burned. Um, so be aware of your calluses. And instead, learn to see others through Jesus' eyes, especially those who share the name Christ. What defines people when you meet them or interact with them? When, when Jesus calls us to love those the world ignores, do you see that others as worthy of your love? Do you see them as family or future family? Because when you do, this is, this is what happens. Please listen, you're not saved, once again, by caring for the vulnerable, but those who are redeemed in Jesus will care for the vulnerable. You know why? Because you don't just learn to see others through Jesus' eyes. You learn to see Jesus in others' eyes. That's what Jesus is saying. He's like, when did we see you? Ah, I was there the whole time. When did we see you? When did we see? This word see shows up all over in our passage. You see, to love the ones the world ignores shows that you ultimately love the greatest one the world ignored. For he was rich, but for our sakes became poor. And he came into the world, and the world didn't give him the time of day. Though Jesus had equality with God, he chose the form of a servant, and he was obedient even to the point of death and death on a cross. Why? That he might pay our debt. That while we were sinners, enemies, impoverished, dead, sick, foreigners to what is good, oppressed by our own selfishness, power-hungry, people-pleasers, glory hogs, without a home, spiritual felons. He came to the lowest of the low and he died the lowest of death, a criminal's death for you and me. And us having nothing and him owing us nothing, he earned our forgiveness and then gave us everything. And if we've embraced Jesus, the one who the world ignores... 
we will lavish the opportunity to love the ones the world ignores. Listen, Jesus always takes this personally. Will we? Let's pray. God, we come to this passage, and I know that this passage has been used for a lot of things throughout church history. And instead of hearing it as a charge to the church, many hear it as, as an opportunity or an obligation that heaps guilt rather than empowers us to live in greater gratitude for the glory of God. May we be a people who rest in the grace of the gospel and out of that, liberally love those the world ignores because we see them in your eyes. We see you in their eyes. So God, may we do this once again, not as a way to earn our salvation, but a way to show that we are yours in gratitude and joy. Help us, God, to do that well. Protect us from helping that hurts people. Protect us from arrogance protect us from self-pity, and may we be the family here that really does welcome in the stranger. May we be the family here that is aware of our assets as a community and seeks the common good of our city and the most vulnerable in our city, those that are often overlooked. Help us as a church to do that together as you've designed us to do so as a body of Christ. We love you. We thank you. Help us to love others. In Jesus' name, amen. Will we now turn...